Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Atlanta's Savory Stories is our bi-monthly series where food historian Akala McConnell and chef Asada Reed bring us histories and recommendations from Atlanta's diverse culinary landscape. With Thanksgiving right around the corner, we'll take a deep dive into the controversial history of the holiday, Georgia's connection to sweet potatoes, and how to make a delicious turkey at home, all later this hour. We begin with music. Pianist Inon Barnatan has won ongoing acclaim from the most discerning critics. He is active as a concert artist, recitalist, chamber musician, and curator. Inan Barnatan will be the guest soloist for the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra's concerts this weekend. And he joins me now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. So great to be back and so great to talk to you again. Thank you. In the earliest years of the 19th century, the violin virtuoso Niccolo Paganini wrote this simple melody that has continued to inspire other composers to this very day. In 1934, the Russian composer Sergei Rachmaninoff wrote the most famous example, the piece you will perform here in Atlanta. What does Rachmaninoff do with the main theme in his Rhapsody on a Theme by Paganini? That's a good question, and but in, in almost a better question would be, what does he not do? <laughs> <laughs> One of the charms of this particular theme is how simple it is, it, both thematically and harmonically. It's just a skeleton that you can put whatever you want on top. And Rachmaninoff almost emphasizes that by starting this piece in the most simple way possible with the orchestra or the violins in the orchestra just stating the theme as it is. And the, the piano is, the first variation can be played by a, by a five-year-old. 
It's just <laughs> this just single notes outlying the very skeleton of the theme. course soon after he kind of delves into a much more elaborate and increasingly elaborate use of the piano and nobody really it's hard to think of another composer except for perhaps Chopin that understood the piano so thoroughly and so magnificently so the type of writing that Rachmaninoff can write for the piano where it can sound the most pianistic at the same time as sounding the most orchestral and the most vocal. Uh, and he, he weaves his magic and every variation really tells a miniature story in sound. Of the 24 variations, do you have a favorite or a few that you especially enjoy? Ooh, that's a tough one. Well, it's hard not to love, of course, the, the famous 18th variation, the most recognizable, probably amongst the, the, the two most famous tunes he ever wrote, where he takes the theme and he turns it upside down. Instead of going da-da-da-da-dum, he goes da-da-da-da-dum. continues one of the most heart-wrenching but also gloriously hopeful pieces of music he wrote so obviously that's a, a favorite but I do love two others that come to mind one is is there's a, a a variation at the very very end that he uses the piano in such a magnificent way and the, the very very last variation and he brings all the things together from the piece, the virtuosity, the, uh, he uses very often this, this theme from uh, Dies Irae, uh, the Day of the Dead theme, he interweaves it with the Paganini theme and he, it all comes together at the end and, and it's really quite glorious. The other point is, there's a point that's really personal to me because I, I hear something there that I think maybe just I hear it, but there's a variation in which it sounds like Rachmaninoff is just inching up and running up this, this steep cliff and there's so much effort. And then at some point he just launches off the cliff and starts 
drifting in the air and the, musically and sonically it's just such a glorious effect so i always imagine it as the skydive this the not skydiving the uh, paragliding variation Paganini and Rachmaninoff were dazzling performers as well as composers. You mentioned the virtuosity in this rhapsody. How does Rachmaninoff let the piano soloist display the virtuosity that he and Paganini illustrated in concert themselves? One of the advantages of using the variation form is that you don't have to stick to one type of virtuosity. Each variation, in some ways, uses a different aspect of Rachmaninoff's ingenuity in writing for the piano. There's the lyrical, there's the really very uh, fast-moving notes. There's one variation specifically that reminds me really of Art Tatum, because he does, he does this very long free-form, almost jazzy improvisation, and it's really quite spectacular in its virtuosity and, and, and ingenuity. But then sometimes he uses the piano in a very orchestral way and, and a very, he writes these big chords or these huge octave passages. Really every, every inch of piano virtuosity is explored in this piece. And in such a compact way, I mean, it's really barely over 20 minutes, this piece, and just the amount of variety and variation that he uses both musically and technically is staggering. Mm. Uh, I've always wanted to uh, transcribe this piece by, by Rachmaninoff, the, the symphonic dances, which is an orchestral piece. The last piece he wrote um, not too long after the Paganini variations. And I've always wanted to play it on one piano. He, Rachmaninoff himself transcribed it for two pianos. But I heard a recording, a very private, almost illicit recording that somebody made of Rachmaninoff playing it for Eugene Ormandy before the, the conductor, before the very first performance of Phonic Dances. And he plays the whole piece and he talks through it and he, he's singing and, and he plays it on one piano. And it really is quite a remarkable document. And he makes it sound so wonderful on one piano. So as soon as the pandemic hit, I think even was was in April of, of 2020, I just devoted myself to making a solo piano transcription of that. And now I'm playing it all over the place. And it's really, uh, um, it was such a great way to immerse myself in the world of Rachmaninoff and, and, and the particular ingenuity of the later period of his life, which the Paganini Rhapsody is part of, in which he, he uses more and more 20th century harmonic complexity beyond that the lushness and the, the beauty that we associate with with his music there's there's a, a 20th century sensibility that really enhances a lot of that music so it was a very very gratifying gratifying process and oh, i wish i could have listened in 
Will you record this? Actually, I've just decided to record it. So yes, I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping that I will record it uh, uh, early next year and then that it will be out by the end of of the year, which is also happens to be a Rahmayad of year. <laughs> uh, anniversary. 23. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I'm hoping to have that out uh, by the end of the year. Oh, fantastic. Inon, you commission and perform many works by living composers. How is your love for connecting the musical past to the present revealed in your work? Well, I've always been fascinated by the conversations that composers have with each other across centuries. And, and I think every, every composer chooses whether they engage with the past and how they engage with the past. And I find that fascinating. So for me, when I play, whether it's a solo recital or orchestra recital or chamber music, I think it's so much more gratifying and interesting to me to, to hear how music is alive and how it's reverberated, how certain ideas and musical ideas reverberate through centuries. And I mean, certainly we hear, <laughs> we hear that uh, even with, with Rachmaninoff engaging with very, very directly with themes by another composer. And he famously made all these transcriptions of Bach and of, of, of his fellow composers. And despite being accused of looking backwards more than forwards. Oh, talk about stupid and <laughs> how was that for mm, the wrong take exactly oh well well yeah i i think looking backwards at the same time as looking forwards is what the great composers do and i find that really gratifying and you know with quote unquote classical music history has done the sifting for us of what endured and there were so many composers so many pieces that were written around the same time as Beethoven or Achmeinov or Mozart that are forgotten, whether rightly so or not, but history has sifted them uh, so that we're left with, with far fewer. And I think it's our job, <laughs> or if we choose to do it, it's our job to, to sift through what's being written now and figure out what we love and what deserves to be heard and... Um, not all contemporary pieces are good, just same way as not every classical piece that was written is good. But but that process is, first of all, indispensable and fascinating and just uh, a joy to be a part of. Well, I think you are actively a part of it. And isn't that love for connecting the musical past to the present also revealed in your recording of the Time Traveler's Journey. Ah, yes, the Time Traveler Suite. Yes, I, that was exactly the reason for that that entire project. I found one of the composers I really admire uh, these days is, is Thomas Addis. He's is, uh, uh, probably known to your listeners. If not, then I encourage them to get to know him. But one of the foremost composers writing now, and I whenever he writes a new piano piece, I'm sure to try and, and, and get the score and try and play it. And there was this piece that he wrote that I ended up doing the, the U.S. premiere of the Blanca variations, or variations for Blanca, uh, Blanca being a character in one of his operas. And this piece was part of the opera. And 
to me though it sounded very baroque it sounded almost so inspired by the music of the baroque and which thomas addis is very very connected to and and even transcribing pieces from the baroque so i decided to put together a journey that connects pieces from the baroque to composers that that were inspired by the baroque period through the 20 and 21st century so the entire the entire album is basically putting together a suite kind of like a baroque suite but every movement of that suite every dance of that suite is by a different composer from a different century that for me is was a very well almost the most obvious way of exploring my own curiosity about those conversations between centuries between composers and inspirations cross inspirations uh, carrying through to today well you are a fantastic guide through that time traveler's journey and it is such a joy to speak with you Cannot wait to hear you play next week. Inon Barnatam, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Always a joy to talk to you. Inan Barneton will be the guest soloist with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra tonight and Saturday. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. All through the year, WABE has had great fun recording our music series, Sounds Like ATL. Tomorrow, we invite you to experience it for yourself. We'll feature music of these talented artists, Raquel Lilly, Takinobu, and Ruby Vell and the Sulfonics. That sounds like ATL tomorrow night at 8 on 90.1. And you can see the performance on WABE-TV tomorrow at 11 p.m. In a moment, our food series, Atlanta's Savory Stories, dives deep into the history of Thanksgiving in the South. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. 
and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights. I'm WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Atlanta Savory Stories is our bi-monthly series where food historian Akila McConnell and chef Asada Reed bring us histories and recommendations from Atlanta's diverse culinary landscape. Thanksgiving is right around the corner, and this episode takes a deep dive into the controversial history of the holiday, Georgia's connection to sweet potatoes, and how to make a delicious turkey at home. Let's join our food contributors now. Thanksgiving is coming up, and of course, we have to talk about Thanksgiving foods. I mean, this is basically one holiday that is all about eating my type of holiday. Uh, my family loves it. Uh, speaking of which, Asana, what is your favorite Thanksgiving food? Oh, I don't know if I can pick just one. This is this is the day. This is the big game. This is the meal we've all been waiting for. But I do have to say that my husband makes a wild mushroom gravy that is legendary. It precedes him into spaces. In fact, I could drink it like soup and I may have, if I'm being honest. What's your favorite Thanksgiving dish, Akila? Yeah, same here. So hard to choose, you know, especially when you think about like pies. I only make certain desserts uh, at Thanksgiving, including my apple pie. Mm. But my very favorite is cranberry relish. Um, it's truly the best cranberry dish I've had anywhere. Uh, I always think I've made too much, but somehow it disappears really quickly. And it's so easy to make that actually my daughter has been helping me make it since she was three years old. Oh, that is so sweet. And yes, cranberry relish has become a crowd favorite. It's something that I have taught both kids and adults how to make in various classes because it is so easy and so good and so very Thanksgiving. So we're going to have to swap some recipes on that cranberry relish. Absolutely. But, you know, winding it back, hundreds of years ago, people were eating cranberry relish for Thanksgiving. And I thought it would be fun for us to dive into historic Thanksgivings in Atlanta. That's and this, yeah, and the story is probably not the story that you know of. Um, I think all of us, you know, we grew up uh, learning about the story about the first Thanksgivings held between the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag. And yes, in the beginning, Thanksgiving was a New England tradition. But uh, really, the story of Thanksgiving in the South is very different. So in 1789, uh, you know, the country is just formed. President George Washington, he issued the very first Thanksgiving proclamation, and it created a day of public Thanksgiving and prayer on November 26, 1789. And this was specifically a religious day. 
funny enough, after that, the first Thanksgiving proclamation was issued the day after Congress established uh, the First Amendment of the United States. Uh, so they did that. And then immediately the next day, they passed this resolution to thank God for the United States victory in the Revolutionary War and help in establishing the constitutional government. But it wasn't something that lasted a really long time. Um, for almost 74 years after that first proclamation, there were no specific national days of Thanksgiving. Um, it was something primarily celebrated in New England, rarely celebrated in the South, and individual states and cities selected their own days of Thanksgiving whenever they felt like. So for example, in 1846, the state of Georgia declared November 5th as Thanksgiving Day. In 1848, the mayor of Augusta, Georgia declared December 14th as Thanksgiving Day. Well, that just sounds like it's all over the place. Yeah, it really was. Definitely not the type of Thanksgiving that we think of today. And the push of, for a national day of Thanksgiving came from one woman, and that woman was editor Sarah J. Hale of the Godey's Ladies Book. Now, Godey's at the time, back in the 1800s, I mean, that was the place you went for information. It was the most influential publication for women in the country. It included recipes, fashion guidelines, even how you should style and decorate your house. I actually heard a TikToker refer to Sarah J. Hale as the Martha Stewart of her time. Absolutely. And even more so because she also was a very strong abolitionist. And Hale specifically felt that it was necessary for the country's unity, especially pre-Civil War, to create a national day of Thanksgiving that would be focused entirely on prayer and thanks. And she pushed strongly for the last Thursday in November to be held as Thanksgiving Day because this would be like this moral and social reunion. Now, the thing to think about that's interesting here is these early Thanksgiving Day celebrations, she wasn't so much focused on the food. That's what we think about today. Right. Um, she really intended Thanksgiving to be a much more like solemn day of re reflection, meditation, prayer, but they started, uh, Godey's Ladies Book soon started uh, creating menus for Thanksgiving celebrations. And as the years went on, these menus became more and more elaborate. Um, so her most ambitious goal was to get the president to declare Thanksgiving as an official national holiday. But for nearly 20 years, every single president ignored her plea. At the same time, Thanksgiving soon came to be celebrated by families across the country, and it was influenced by the menus written by Hale. So families used to celebrate with what they called a New England supper of turkey, oysters, potatoes, macaroni and cheese, chicken pot pie, pie, and of course, that cranberry relish we were talking about at the beginning. Yeah, lots of familiar dishes on that menu. Uh, so when did Thanksgiving actually become an official national holiday? That's a really interesting question. And it has a lot to do with politics and the Civil War. So on October 3rd, 1863, exactly 74 years after George Washington's first Thanksgiving pro proclamation, President Lincoln officially established the fourth Thursday in November 
as a national day of Thanksgiving. And he was definitely doing this for political reasons. Uh, Yeah, he was. Um, So if you've ever heard anybody say, you know, like politics and Thanksgiving don't mix. Yeah, actually (laughs) they do. (laughs) So think to yourself what it was like in 1863. The country was two years into the Civil War. So the entire country is basically split apart. And though the Union had just won the Battle of Gettysburg, morale was pretty low. I mean, this was two full years of hard-fought battles. Uh, Sons were being separated from their family. Many families had lost a great deal of money. Um, So many people had died. President Lincoln was heading into another election year in 1864, and he needed a way to improve national morale. So... In October, he issued a Thanksgiving proclamation. Now, (laughs) this was a very thinly veiled pat on his own back. If you actually read the proclamation, which I recommend if you're a history geek like me, um, he actually thanked God for the fact that in the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, order and law had been maintained. Now, we left out of the proclamation that he was the one that had maintained the order (laughs) and law, but that's basically what he was getting at. Um, And this Thanksgiving proclamation was published in all of the major northern newspapers, along with an illustration from a very renowned artist, which showed an uh, image of Columbia, which was the personification of America, praying for the country and everybody around her laying lowering their heads in prayer now i mean as you can tell again like the focus really was less about the food which is what we think about today right but at the same time um the military wanted to give the union soldiers something special something that would make them feel rewarded and excited about this thanksgiving day And so the Union soldiers, who had been largely starving, soldiers received very poor rations. You know, they were eating salt pork and crackers and, um, you know, very uninteresting food. On Thanksgiving Day, stationed across the South, they received special rations, which included roast turkey, chicken and pigeon, stewed oyster, It was such a good meal that there are numerous letters. I mean, if you look at Union soldiers' letters back home during the Civil War, consistently they wrote about how amazing Thanksgiving was, that that Thanksgiving dinner was like the best night that they had in so many months. Um, One surgeon, he wrote that he had a good dinner of baked chicken and pudding, boiled potatoes and turnips, But he couldn't eat that much because his stomach wasn't used to eating rich foods during wartime. And that's really kind of where this idea came from, that thanks, it's not just Thanksgiving itself as the stand prayer, but also Thanksgiving dinner is this very important, very special and unique event. Wow. So Thanksgiving becoming a national holiday was really a political power move by Lincoln. That's so interesting. Okay, I'm guessing since um, Thanksgiving was so much associated with the Union, people down here in Atlanta weren't really trying to celebrate it. Is that right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, And now, you know, we were just talking about how even prior to the Civil War, 
you know, Thanksgiving was considered a New England holiday. New England was abolitionist territory. Uh, actually, during the Civil War, Godey's Ladies Book was banned completely in the South. And Southerners living in the Confederacy certainly did not accept Thanksgiving when President Lincoln published his proclamation. Um, in fact, some Southern newspapers even turned Thanksgiving into a state's rights issue. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing to think about Thanksgiving, this holiday that we think of today as like beloved by all, uh, but it was super divisive back then. This Macon newspaper, um, it criticized Lincoln for naming it a national holiday um, instead of allowing states to pick their own day of Thanksgiving. And that Macon newspaper wrote in like a really scathing article, uh, the darling scheme of the Lincolnites is to obliterate the states, even in the matter of holidays. Oh, harsh words. Harsh words, right? And it gets worse. So that's the first Thanksgiving, the first official Thanksgiving in 1863. Thanksgiving becomes even more controversial at the second Thanksgiving in 1864. And what happens is General William Tecumseh Sherman, his famous march to the sea through Georgia happened in the fall of 1864. Now, Sherman on November 23rd, 1864, one day before the second official Thanksgiving, Sherman and the Union soldiers seized Milledgeville, which at that time was the capital city of Georgia. So the second Thanksgiving, the second official Thanksgiving, Sherman wakes up in the morning and orders all the Union soldiers in what was then the seized capital of Georgia, that they should all get a Thanksgiving feast of turkey and chicken, and then immediately they should go and begin to methodically destroy every single wealthy home in Milledgeville. Whoa. Whoa, right? <laughs> and there's actually this amazing letter back from a Union soldier in Milledgeville. And he says, well, we had our roast turkey this morning. And then we went out and it was really hard seeing all of these beautiful furnishings being trashed. Mm. He didn't use the word trashed, but that's really what he was talking about. I mean, they were just ripping things apart. And you can imagine, you know, for those who lived in Georgia and much of the South, I mean, this was like the ultimate offense right. for that. You know, I mean, it was like, you can have your cake and eat it too, Seriously. Right? Um, so Thanksgiving, this was not something celebrated in the South, definitely not celebrated in Atlanta. I mean, even in 1869, four years after the Civil War ended, there was a Georgia newspaper article which sneered at Northerners eating Thanksgiving roast turkey and puritanical beans, and quote, they said, until they were internally as sour and flatulent as their politics. Oh, wow. Yeah, the hatred was still burning pretty high right there. It, it was burning. Yeah. And for Thanksgiving, which we all supposedly love today, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it's so interesting that even from its inception as a natural holiday, Thanksgiving was controversial. Because, I mean, even today, when the holiday rolls around, social media lights up with polar opinions on its told history, what should be eaten, who should be honored, or even if it should be celebrated. So how did Atlantans in the late 1800s finally come to terms with Thanksgiving? 
Great question. Um, and, you know, you're totally right in the sense that the, I've heard so many people on social media today say, oh, well, Thanksgiving, this is such a controversial holiday. It's always been a controversial. <laughs> like it was never not controversial. <laughs> it, it was never not controversial. From day one, this was a controversial holiday. You know, as far as I can tell, really Atlantans didn't start accepting Thanksgiving as a legitimate holiday until the early 1890s. Uh, and this is, you know, when you really think about it, almost 35 years after the Civil War ends, 35 years after Lincoln proclaims it as a national holiday. And it really took like one full generation removed from the Civil War. But by the early 1890s, uh, you start seeing all of these articles and diary entries and newspapers saying, Thanksgiving is a huge part of Atlanta celebrations. And it's, you know, the, the whole concept of sharing these very large meals becomes popular. Now, at the same time, what's interesting is this initial concept that uh, that Mrs. Hale had in Godey's Lady Books about Thanksgiving being more for prayer and less for eating. That's gone away by 1890. Um, by 1890, Thanksgiving is very much a food holiday. Culinary historian Akila McConnell and Chef Asad Reed are food contributors for Atlanta's Savory Stories. We'll be back with more of that conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Let's return to more of our series, Atlanta's Savory Stories. Our food contributors, culinary historian Akla McConnell and Chef Asad Reed, have been taking us through the contentious history of Thanksgiving. Here, McConnell discusses the menu of the first Thanksgiving meal in Atlanta. You know, actually, a lot of things that are very similar to what we have today. So back in 1889, uh, the Atlanta Constitution, their front headline on Thanksgiving Day was Thanksgiving Day was a day of turkeys, cranberry sauce, and football. Very little has changed. <laughs> Very little has changed, right? And, I mean, look at me, but we're still talking about that cranberry relish. We can't get away from it, right? And, you know, this really was due to the influence of recipe books like Godey's Lady Books, uh, because these were recipes and foods and activities that were form found commonly in New England. Uh, you know, cranberries, for example, are definitely not something that we grow here in the South. Right. Uh, and even in the late 1800s, they were being shipped down from Cape Cod, Massachusetts to be served at Atlanta's dinner tables. Oh, they had to be a delicacy. Uh, they were imported. They were imported. Um, but Asada, I thought you might like to hear what the Atlanta Constitution suggested an average Thanksgiving dinner should include in the year 1899. Oh, yes, absolutely. Tell me. Okay. So if you were at of average wealth, the newspaper said, the newspaper gave you the following menu. It included oysters on the half shell, cream of tomato soup, roast turkey, 
cranberry sauce, currant jelly, mashed potatoes, glazed sweet potatoes, succotash, onions with cream sauce, mayonnaise and celery. And then for de dessert, you had to have wafers, cheese, pumpkin pie, mince pie, and fruits. So, you know, when you hear that, it's really interesting that a lot of what we consider essential to Thanksgiving feasts today, like roast turkey, cranberry sauce, sweet potatoes, and those have been part of Thanksgiving celebrations for over a century, while other things that used to be very popular, like oysters and mince pie, they're rarely served. That's true. And I also like that they mentioned a few items for dessert because I know sweet potato pie is a must, but other desserts make an appearance in, as well. In fact, it's not really Thanksgiving in our family without a dessert table. <laughs> and I know in Georgia, sweet potato pie is served more than pumpkin pie, largely due to sweet potatoes being easier to grow here than edible pumpkins. And also due to the labor of enslaved people, um, large plantations could produce a lot of sweet potatoes. In fact, to this day, sweet potatoes are still grown right here in the state of Georgia. And fun fact, they are actually the harvest of the month produce selected for the farm to school initiatives here in the state in November. Um, so I think it might be kind of helpful to share some tips to make the Thanksgiving feast a bit easier for the home cook. What do you think? I, I think that sounds great. And I think, Asada, you have to start with that sweet potato pie. Of course. I mean, after all of that gravy and cranberry sauce, the sweet potato pie is probably the one thing that stands out for me. Um, so here's a couple of tips to make your best pie. Um, one, for a richer taste, roast the sweet potatoes in their jacket or in their skin and then peel them. It just gives them a deeper, richer, more caramelized flavor. And some people complain about the strings, the fibers that run through the sweet potatoes. Well, once they're roasted and peeled, you just toss them in your mixer with the whisk attachment and the strings all get caught up in the whip and you're just left with creamy, smooth, roasted sweet potato. The crust is almost as important as the filling. And to make a flaky pie crust, it's actually pretty simple, very few ingredients, but you need cold butter. I just use chipped cold butter. I cut my butter into tiny pieces and then freeze it. And as it bakes, the butter melts and it leaves buttery spaces behind and creates flaky layers. So I have a question for you mm -hmm. because I cheat a little bit because it takes such a long time to cut cold butter. I do tend to cut my cold butter in the food processor and then mix it with my flour. Is that okay? That works as well. And I've even seen people freeze the entire sticks of butter or even a pound, a block of butter and grate it with a hand grater. I'm not that picky. As long as you've got small pieces of cold butter, you'll get flaky layers. That sounds great. And I know there's so many amazing chefs who use sweet potatoes all around our city, right? Yes. Oh, let's start with uh, Chef Matthew Rayford. He's a sixth generation, sixth generation farmer down in South Georgia, and he's the board president of Georgia Organics. And he features his grandpa Arthur's citrus candied sweet potatoes and his book, Bress and Yam. It's a great book if you love like indigenous Georgia flavors. Um, and if you like yams, you know, the whole candy yams, these are some of the best you'll ever have. You will not miss the marshmallows. Tony Tipton Martin gives us a gorgeous sweet potato pie with praline topping in her book, Jubilee. And that book is just a gem. And Atlanta resident chef 
Jennifer Booker gives us a fantastic recipe to use up any of those leftover roasted sweet potatoes that you might have. You can reinvent them for breakfast in her sweet potato crepe recipe from her book, Dinner Deja Vu, Southern Tonight, French Tomorrow. And I have to say, if you're the sort of person who doesn't want to cook your sweet potatoes yourself, the candied yams at Pascal's is probably my top choice for candied yams in the city. Super cinnamony, sugary, absolutely delicious. So I think we're all set on sweet potatoes. Let's talk turkey main course, right? Yes, let's jump in there. If we are going to smoke a turkey, we usually spatchcock it. That's just cutting the backbone out um, so that it fits on the grill better. And then we brine it for 24 hours in the refrigerator. Once I take that backbone out, I start a pot of simple turkey stock while I'm getting the brine ready for the turkey. I use that turkey stock in my dressing to keep it nice and moist. Um, the brine is usually a mix of salt and sugar plus aromatics like onions and garlic and herbs like thyme, rosemary, and bay leaf. But sometimes we'll go in a definitive direction with other flavors like adding orange peel, ginger, and soy sauce just for like a non-traditional turkey. It just kind of depends on how we're feeling. Um, my brine is pretty simple. My tips are keep it cold. I combine all of those ingredients in a large pot, bring it up to a simmer, and then let it cool down to room temperature and pour the mixture into a giant pot with tons of ice. You want to cool this brine all the way down before you submerge your bird. You don't want a raw bird going into anything lukewarm because that's just a bacteria bath. So the bird goes in, <laughs> breast side down into the bath, and it should be completely submerged by the cool liquid. Cover that with a, either a lid or a plate or even a bunch of plastic wrap and pop it in the fridge. So note to self, you need some room in the fridge to pull off this brine. However- I, I, I've got a whole extra refrigerator just yes. for Thanksgiving, basically. Basically, <laughs> yes. Between, yeah, the, the, I have a refrigerator where we pull out one shelf and the pot just goes right in the fridge and it stays in there. But you can use a cooler. You can do the cooler method with ice packs and put your pot in there, but you need a thermometer in there so that you are in control and aware of the temperature of your um, brined bird in the cooler. Do not just dump the ingredients and the bird into that cooler because now that cooler is contaminated, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> so the next day after 24 hours, and I've even gone 48. I know I don't typically recommend brining anything 48 hours, but for some reason the turkeys can take it. They just can. So uh, if you want to get it brining out of the way, you can do it as far as 48 hours out. Once you take it out of the brine, it has to air dry before it hits the grill. So I just place it on a wire rack because remember, we already took the backbone out. So it opens out. I place it on a wire rack and let it air dry um, before we get it ready to head out on the grill. And I can work on getting the coals and everything together. I, I love that. And, you know, if you're the sort of person who's like, ooh, this just sounds like a lot of work. One of the lovely things, though, is that there are um, other places that you can actually get your barbecued turkey here in the city, too, right? Yes, you can pre-order turkeys. And what I've noticed over the last few years, um, you can get them from your favorite restaurants. And they'll normally put out... Um, notifications on social media or on their web page that, hey, we're doing turkeys. But I love how some local chefs have made this a special time of year. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of Pam's Magic Cauldron because she is the smoke queen here in Atlanta, in my opinion. And if she's doing smoked turkeys this year, you better get on her list quick and in a hurry. 
<laughs> um, I have friends who swear by Wood Chapel Barbecues turkey. That's their to go, but there are so many great places to um, get smoked turkeys. Or, of course, you could use Asada's amazing method. Um, and what does it look like once it's all done? Gorgeous. Just gorgeous. Because the whole thing about a brine is it's going to be juicy. The, the way that the salt in the brine works is it uses osmosis to pull liquid into the meat. So you've got this flavored liquid, this flavored jacuzzi that your bird is hanging out in for a day or and a night. And it's just slowly pulling that flavor into the meat. And it takes on a very gorgeous color because there's a bit of sugar in the brine as well, which is going to help caramelize the outer surface, the skin surface. Um, I like to start my spatchcock bird bone side down. So we're getting that inner cavity working and get a lot of smoke into that bird and then flip it over, finish with the color. And she's just gorgeous and easy to carve. It's it's a great technique because once the bird is on the grill, you can go focus on other things as long as you know you don't have any flare-ups or anything. So it's sort of a hands-off approach where you don't have to babysit your turkey. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I've got to tell you, it also sounds like you're able to free up some oven space for all of that additional delicious stuff that you're making. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, so let's switch over and talk about side dishes. I said before, cranberry relish, 100%, my absolute favorite thing. I've got to give y'all my recipe for uh, cranberry relish yes. because it is so simple. Uh, all I do is I throw two whole clementine oranges and then one cut green apple and then a bag of uh, washed cranberries with uh, just a little bit of lemon juice, throw it into the food processor and grind it up, um, you know, get it really, really fine. And then I just add sugar to taste uh, and some cinnamon and nutmeg. I swear to you, it just disappears <laughs> off the table. It's so good. So easy. Takes five minutes to complete. Actually, I've now assigned it to my kids to make so they feel like they're participating in the cooking process. Um, but how do you make your cranberry sauce, Asada? It's also super simple. This is the, the cranberry sauce that I just give this recipe away because it is so easy. You take a saucepan and you add in your one pound bag of rinsed cranberries and one jar of orange marmalade, the good stuff where you can actually see the orange peels in it. Throw in two sticks of cinnamon and a couple of cloves and then a generous splash of orange juice, if you're feeling pious, or orange flavored liqueur like Cointreau or Grand Marnier, and then just let it simmer over low heat. Godie's Ladybug definitely would not have been a fan of the Grand Marnier, <laughs> but I will go for the Grand Marnier. We can do that one for when, when we, you and I get together right. for Thanksgiving. You have a shot for <laughs> us and a shot for the pot. And then you just want to put a lid on it because cranberries do like to pop and explode as they cook down. But once they're tender and the pectin has thickened, the sauce is done. It's going to continue to thicken as it cools. But if you want um, a sweeter sauce, you can add a little more brown sugar to it because even with the marmalade, this one's a little on the tart side. And if you want a smoother sauce, because some people are like chunky adverse, just throw it in the food processor once it's done and it'll smooth right out. And just like your sauce, this gets devoured every time, even by people who claim they don't like cranberry sauce. I I just love that. That just sounds amazing to me. And of course, like the great thing about cranberry sauce is you've got your leftover turkey, leftover turkey, cranberry sauce on a sandwich. Yes. Best thing to do. The best sandwich of the year. <laughs> uh, so, you know, Thanksgiving, it's 
such a production. Of course, you can get your Thanksgiving meals at any of the amazing restaurants that we've talked about. But if you're planning it yourself, um, how do you do that? I mean, Asana, what's your biggest tip for planning the Thanksgiving menu? Outside of the timing, you know, things like you have to thaw a turkey, which takes a couple of days and there are things that go in the oven and things that have to go on the stovetop and you need to work strategically there. I think my biggest tip for planning a Thanksgiving menu is to go for a variety of flavors. Anytime you have a big meal or a feast, you want to play with flavors and textures. You want savory gravy and crisp vegetables and creamy potatoes and bitter cranberries and hearty roasted meats. And it's okay to flavor each dish in a separate but complimentary way. The most boring Thanksgiving dinners taste like celery and sage are in every dish. So mix it up like a mosaic of flavor so that you and your guests are on a journey as they eat instead of just a concrete destination. I love that. That just sounds delicious and sounds like what people have been doing since we've started celebrating Thanksgiving for so long ago. It's a journey, not just a destination. Yeah, and the holiday keeps changing as time goes by. And with that in mind, Thanksgiving is also a great time to start new family traditions that can increase the repertoire of vegetables and other dishes that are served. It's a time to honor our food legacy that we've inherited, and it's also an opportunity to expand the food legacy that we leave behind. Chef Asada Reed and culinary historian Akila McConnell. Food contributors for our series, Atlanta's Savory Stories. You can find the recipes mentioned for sweet potatoes and how to cook a turkey at home on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., photographer and filmmaker Jillian Laub discusses her new exhibition, Southern Rights, on view at Atlanta Contemporary through January 8th. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.